Today on Ag News Daily. So are there some things that we can do to feed our young stock or dry cows um, and maybe give uh, our, our milking cows a little bit better quality product out there? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by a sick Mike Pearson. Mike, how you doing? You're not sounding too good today. You know, I am not today. I uh, I guess this is going to happen to me today. Probably is the best day to do it because I did not have to uh, tape this week in agribusiness. Orion Samuelson was back in town. He's holding that fort down with Max Armstrong. So all I have to do is the podcast, which I apologize, everybody. I will try not to say very much today. Yeah, that, w- that uh, wouldn't work out so well for you, would it? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is, I mean, it's it's not great right now. No, it is not. Hold on a second. Speaking. Oh, yeah. I'm just in a car. Okay, go ahead. Um, it's not great. It is not great at all. And Delaney, you know what else is not great? What? Waiting on pins and needles for President Trump to exit a meeting with his top trade advisors. Earlier this morning, or I guess earlier this afternoon, it was announced that a trade deal with China Phase 1 has been agreed to in principle. And all we are waiting on is Donald Trump's signature, which, as we're recording this, at a quarter to four central time, he still hasn't come out and said whether or not he signed the deal or not. Yeah, we've tried to wait as long as possible to see what is going to happen. And so we're seeing different reports by various news outlets. Some people say a deal is eminent. Others are saying it's really up to President Trump and his advisors. But who knows? Hopefully we see something one way or the other this afternoon. But it does sound like they're at least going to push off this weekend's tariffs, Mike. Okay. All right. Now, I I hadn't heard that confirmed. So that's good news. That is good news. So we will, I'm sitting here, I got uh, the TV on, we got the news going, it's tuned in, ready for President Trump. If he pops his head out of the White House to make an announcement, we'll uh, we'll go right to it. We'll let our listeners know exactly what's going down. We will indeed. Another big headline that caught my eye today was looking at our export markets. Mike, did you see that today? I did. We have fantastic news today on the export side. That we do. We had a huge shipment of corn heading to Mexico, or not heading yet, but export sale for delivery to Mexico during the 2020-2021 marketing year. I read this is the fifth largest daily sale of U.S. corn dating back to 1997. 1977, Uh, excuse me. Yeah, 1977. This is going all the way back since we've been issuing these daily uh, sales reports. Um, This is a huge sale, 1.6 million metric tons bought by Mexico, set the markets off on a rally this morning. We also had the export sales report out from USDA. That was generally bullish. All of exports this past week were at the high end of analyst expectations. So it was was broadly great news day for the grain markets. And then – you know, we could see what happens tonight at the reopen if this trade deal is going through. I think either way, we're probably going to have some positive sentiment when the markets open tonight. I was watching the stock markets and they were all rallying on the news or the rumored news, I should say. So it's going to be an interesting day tomorrow in the markets, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Equities closed at record highs today. So, I mean, there is definitely a lot of frothiness in this market. Um and now it, it needs to be confirmed if this thing is going to verify. And so we'll just we'll just keep waiting. 
we'll just keep waiting, Mike. Well, one thing we don't have to keep waiting on is what happens with the House vote for the H-2A visa program. And we saw last night the House, which of course is Democratic controlled, approved the bill. It's approved now by the House to, and now has to be sent over to the Senate, which is obviously GOP controlled. So it's really unclear if it will pass in the Senate or not. We only saw, I believe it was 30 some Republicans vote for this Farm Workforce Modernization Act in the House. And as I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, the Trump administration has largely come out against this bill and put pressure on their constituents, other GOP leaders, not to vote in favor of this bill. So unclear if it will pass in the Senate, but I'd say it's unlikely at this point. Yeah, this is the one that uh, lawmakers were like, you know, we don't love it, but it's kind of the only shot we're going to have with a, a Democrat-led House. And so, yeah, I understand there's a lot of mixed feelings on how to vote for this thing. So mm-hmm. maybe President Trump's thoughts will push them towards the no side. Yes. Well, I've got a piece of news coming out of Brazil. Uh, we've talked a lot in the past well, 17 months about how Brazil has been able to gain quite a bit of Chinese market share as the um, as this trade war between uh, China and the U.S. has raged. One area where that has been huge is in meat exports. Um, basically, Brazilian chicken exports could grow as much as 4.5 million tons next year, 7% up. They expect to see another increase in Brazilian pork exports and Brazilian beef exports are also expected to rise. Um, Just for comparison's sake, Brazil increased their pork exports to China by 51% between January and November over a year ago. So there is a lot of, of Brazilian protein flowing into China, Delaney. That's a great segue, Mike, for my next piece of news, and that is, I guess you could, it's definitely protein-focused, but it is not meat-focused. We're continuing just to watch what's going on in the meat labeling sector, and we saw this week a federal judge blocked the Arkansas state from enforcing a meat labeling that they have put into effect or had put into effect, which was supposed to prohibit vegan or vegetarian products from being advertised or labeled with things such as burger or sausage or meat. So we saw the federal judge strike that down and saying that it was unconstitutional and they don't think that consumers can continue to have access to these familiar plant-based products um, without knowing that they aren't meat. They said consumers are smart enough to know that, especially because on certain products, such as vegan products, there's, I guess, the letter V in a circle saying that it is vegan products. So this was seen as kind of a loss for animal agriculture in particular. Uh, They said they were disappointed by these decisions, but they're still determining their next steps to figure out how they can fight this. Because with the federal judge ruling this, Arkansas can't enforce that law while this lawsuit proceeds. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of of struggles ahead with with fake meat, Delaney. Yes, especially uh, that is, you know, as you know, the Tyson headquarters are there in the state of Arkansas. So we know that they've got their fingers in both sides of the pie with both the alternative meats as well as traditional animal agriculture. So it'd be interesting to see what they thought as well. Yeah, yeah, well, well, 
Lenny, I'll tell you what, I got to quit talking. I can do the markets, but I'm all out of news. <laughs> what, do you have any other stories for us? You know, I think the big headline that I was watching today was what's going on in the Chinese trade deal. And unfortunately, we didn't have any news to report there officially yet with that. The gasoline engine will always have a place on the American farm, and it will need to have a method to atomize the fuel and mix it with air, the standard being the carburetor. Hi, I'm Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Though a carburetor has many fuel and air pathways known as circuits, the foundation of its operation is the float circuit. This consists of the bowl, float, and inlet needle valve seat assembly. The float bowl acts as a reservoir that feeds all the fuel circuits. Thus, it has great influence on how the rest of the carburetor operates and in turn how the engine runs. The float setting determines the fuel level in the bowl. If the fuel level in the bowl is too high, the engine can either flood or be excessively rich right off idle. To confirm this, Gain access to the carburetor and look down its throat with the engine running at the speed or lower the problem occurs. If you see raw fuel being dumped, the float level is the first place to look. If the engine runs fine but lacks power on the load, then it is very possible that the fuel level is too low and the bowl is running out of gas and leaning the mixture. I have seen engines that ran fine at idle and light load, but when put to the task, fell off greatly in power or would not RPM. If the float is suspended from the air horn, it will have both a height setting and a drop adjustment. When the float is moored in the float bowl, it will only have a height setting. It is paramount that you follow the manufacturer's procedure for setting the float and their specification, which is usually a fraction of an inch. If you only renew the gaskets in the carburetor and never check the float setting, you are cheating yourself out of the power and performance that that engine has to offer. Mike, so I think I'm out of news as well. Are you sure you can handle the market for today? I think so. Listeners, bear with me. And you're going to want to bear with me, especially if you are a grain producer, because we had a green day on the screen. Looking at the corn market, the December contract was up nine and a quarter cents at three sixty seven even. March up six and a half, finished at three seventy seven and three quarters. In soybeans, the January was up four and three quarters to finish at eight ninety eight even, excuse me, eight ninety eight and a quarter. March up four and a half, finished at nine twelve and a half. Looking at Chicago wheat, the December contract was up eight and a half cents. Wheat was the big leader today. Closed the day at five thirty nine and a quarter. The March contract up eleven cents to finish at five thirty and a quarter. In livestock, we had a mixed trade in the cattle complex. February live cattle dropped 22.5 cents to 125.10. The April up 32.5 to finish at 126.20. In feeder cattle, the January dropped 22.5 to finish at 142.55. March also down 22.5, closed at 143.45. And in lean hogs, the December contract was up 30 cents on the day at $61 even. The February was up 92.5 to finish at 68.65. And finally, before my voice totally disappears, let's take a look at the dairy market in Class 3 milk. December contract up 6 cents at 1943. And the January also up 6 to close at 18.25. Delaney, who are we talking to today? 
Well, Mike, we are talking dairy today, actually, with Dr. Mark Stevenson, who's the Director of Dairy Policy Analysis at the University of Wisconsin. So let's turn it over to our conversation with Mark. Well, as promised, we are continuing our dairy discussion today with Dr. Mark Stevenson, who is the Director of Dairy Policy Analysis at the University of Wisconsin. Mark, I know we've had you on the podcast before, but it's been quite some time. For those of our listeners who have not heard you speak before or maybe aren't in the dairy industry themselves, explain to us what your role is there at the University of Wisconsin. Well, um, I work in the area as an agricultural economist um, exclusively with the dairy industry, and I like to kind of describe what I do as being dairy markets and policy. So markets is different than marketing, which is more about selling products, but um, you know, I try to understand what the market movements and um, what the uh, likelihood of prices are going to be, and um, also work very closely with dairy policy, so such things as the dairy margin coverage program and other policies that we have in place, including federal milk marketing orders, um, is the kind of work that I do. Well, Mark, let's talk first about the markets. Um, we have seen the dairy market go on quite a roller coaster over the past, oh, call it four months. We've gone from historically low prices, then we saw prices get up into the 20s on the front month contracts on that Class 3 milk contract. Now they're pulling back a little bit. Tell us what has been driving that market here over the past four months. Well, we've had relatively strong um, domestic markets um, for uh, sales of dairy products, with the exception of a couple of products like fluid milk, which has uh, been much in the spotlight lately, I guess, for lack of sales <clears throat> or for slower sales. Um, but other products like cheese and uh, butter and, and a variety of dairy products have had very strong sales. So that's helped to shore up our domestic prices. We've also had some increased opportunities uh, with a few countries for export sales of dairy products, and those too have been relatively good. Not as strong as they were last year, but the value of the products are higher, so total export sales have been higher. So it's those sales that have been propping us up, and we shouldn't discount the fact either that we have had very slow growth in milk production this year. Um, in fact, in several of the months in the early half of the year uh, of 2019, we had negative growth below year earlier levels. So that's tightened up our milk supply, and it's let us pull down some of the inventories of products, and those things have let us have some strength in the, in the dairy markets today. And when we have strength in the dairy markets like this, it we've talked to some producers that have said when they're at profitable times like this, it makes them harder to justify signing up or re-signing up for their dairy margin coverage program. Mark, I know we've talked to you about this program before in the past, but I can't remember. I think it's something like there's you know 30,000 dairy farmers that still have not enrolled for the 2020 coverage program. And is that just because of the premiums that we're finally seeing in the milk market, or is there another reason that you've found that producers aren't as apt to sign up again this year? I don't think it's the premium. I think it's just that the forecasts for prices, um, you know, both the milk prices over 2020 um, and also the feed prices, because it's the margin between them that makes the difference, um, suggest to farmers that they're not likely to get payments. 
And in 2019, that was quite the opposite. And in fact, because this was a new um, implementation of the farm bill, we already had half the year behind us and producers knew with certainty what the uh, payments were going to be. So we had a fairly strong sign up last year. I think that, well, there was well more than 80% of dairy farms that enrolled in DMC and about half of those um, enrolled for the five year uh, program with discount. So, you know, we've got producers who are enrolled, but those who uh, only enrolled for the one year, I believe, are looking ahead and they're making the judgment call that I don't think there's going to be payments, so why would I pay any premiums? And what's your thought on that scenario? I mean, obviously, when we're looking at an insurance product, you're kind of hoping that you're not going to get paid on your, uh, you're not going to get your premium money back because the market's going to reward you instead. How should growers be factoring DMC into their, uh, their PML and their bottom line? Well, I think that's an incredibly good point that you make. And I tell uh, producers, you know, almost exactly the same thing. How are you looking at this product? If you're saying that I can't handle the big price swings that we've had, I can't take the price volatility, and you're using this as a risk management product, I strongly encourage farms to sign up for the five-year program. That way you've got a commitment laid out there in front of you. You've put risk management in place um, for a five-year period of time. Um, now just go away and forget about um, you know what your commitment was. You'll have to pay the premiums every year, but you'll receive indemnities anytime they're triggered. So that's, to me, good risk management. If you're sitting here and looking ahead, like a lot of producers are doing right now, and trying to make a judgment about, do I think this will pay or will it not pay, then I think you're looking at this as a profit center and not as risk management. You're, you're basically telling me that um, you're not threatened by the price volatility that we have in place, that that's not going to take you out of business. And so you're just trying to use this as an opportunity to uh, uh, enhance the uh, potential income that you have on the farm. Those are two different things. And Mark, when you look ahead to maybe the next farm bill or even just things going on at the USDA, do, do you see them keeping the DMC program the same or do you see them altering some things there? Is it, I guess, it is, is it as successful as they were hoping that it would be? Well, I think that the uh, the length of the farm bill, you know, five years, is going to give them time to evaluate, did we get it right the second time around? The first time around with a program that was referred to as the Margin Protection Program, or MPP, um, they even wanted to change the name on it because P was just too toxic. You know, farmers were mad. Um, the basic mechanism of the program didn't change. Uh, it's still evaluated based on difference between milk price and, and feed costs. Uh, but the program wasn't sensitive enough to trigger payments when farms felt like they should be getting payments uh, during the last farm bill. And so they changed it a lot, including the name of the program. My guess is that they're going to take a look at the program and they will make a decision about a couple of things. One, um, was it useful and good for dairy farmers? Did, did it do what we hoped it would do? Or two, did we um, maybe overstep the bounds? Was it too generous? Did we pay out more than we should have? You know, this is not quite like auto insurance or health insurance, you know, because with those kind of products, 
you only have a very small proportion of the public that has an accident at any given day, and it's easy enough to calculate what's actuarially fair. But with something like, um, you know, this kind of a product that we call an insurance-type product, it, it really isn't quite the same thing. Um, every farmer has an accident at the same time. Uh, milk prices are all going to move in the same year. So it's pretty hard to know exactly what actuarially fair is. You'll only have that revealed over time. That is a great point, Mark. And now when you look out at the state of the dairy industry on the whole in Wisconsin, this has been a very challenging year, not just from a milk price perspective, but also from a cropping perspective and a feed perspective. What's the advice to growers who have maybe didn't get all the silage they needed, maybe they put up more wet corn than they anticipated? How are dairies coping with these challenges this year? Boy, that's a, a really good observation and question. Um, I was just up in the uh, northeastern part of the state, and, you know, it's pretty obvious that these are, are things that are very much on dairy farmers' minds. You know, we've got improving milk prices right now, uh, but the last five years have been an insult. And, uh, you know, this uh, f problem that we're having with uh, weather and poor crops and not getting the adequate supply out is just, uh, it's injury on top of the insult. And so it's, it's not been a good thing. There were still a lot of farms that had crops in the fields. They're trying to wait for it to freeze up enough to be able to get in there and maybe get the crops out still. And they're looking at alternative forages. So are there some things that we can do to feed our young stock or dry cows um, and maybe give uh, our, our milking cows a little bit better quality product out there? The availability of good quality hay is almost nil at this point. And whatever you can get is very expensive. So there really is a lot of um, just looking to see what the alternatives are for, for forages. Mark, final question for you. You talked a lot about, obviously, and you cover a lot of policy outlooks. Is there Are there any big markets that you see as a potential growth here for the dairy industry? Well, are you talking about exports, I, yes. I take it? Yes, yep. Okay. Well, I think we will certainly have our our USMCA agreement signed. We've obviously had some movement in that direction here over this last week. And, you know, that's a good thing to get that settled. I do think that realistically, if you take a look under the hood at that for dairy, um, it'll be great to have it signed and, and uh, put in place. But really, it hasn't done anything uh, for the sales between the United States and our, our biggest export customer, which is Mexico, because the NAFTA program had already gotten us to free trade. Um, so we've just really kind of worked our way back to free trade with Mexico and dairy products. Um, with Canada, they're typically our third largest customer. We do sell products to them, but those are very much protected as to volume. Um, and product category, and we've negotiated under that some small additional amount of access over time. Um, it's not a big thing, and so I don't expect that we should um, see a lot of additional export sales to those two customers as a result of getting USMCA settled. What would be really good for us is to get something settled with China. 
Um, we sell a lot of whey products, or historically have, to China, and those have been half of what they've typically been. Part of that has probably been the uh, African swine fever, and that's that's an issue that's maybe going to resolve itself here over time, but we also have to get our trade negotiations back together. There's some highlights um, to point out. Um, new negotiations with Japan um, will open that market up a little bit more and put us on a more even playing field with the EU there, and I think that's something to look forward to. We've had strength in other Southeast Asian countries, um, such as uh, South Korea and Vietnam and um, Malaysia. And so I think we can look forward to a little bit of additional sales there. Longer term, I'm hopeful that maybe India becomes one of those uh, other countries like China that is big enough potentially to move the needle. Um, They've got a growing middle class for sure. Uh, They probably can't produce all the milk that they want, although they would want to um, produce a great deal more. So that may offer some longer-term export opportunities as well. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate your insight into the dairy industry. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Stevenson. Interesting stuff to hear what he's hearing from a policy side and what's been leading these dairy rallies here over the past couple of months. But, folks, if you'd like to get caught up on any past episodes of the Ag News Daily podcast, you can find us anytime online at agnewsdaily.com or find us on your favorite podcast app as well as social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's go.